Podcast. We're on location here in Egypt. We are currently really far out in the desert, in the middle of nowhere, near a place called Al Qasr. Listen, let me give you a little bit of a pro tip on traveling to Egypt. Don't come during the summer. Just don't do it. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Uh, there is currently a sandstorm that's happening, so our power went out, and it's about 40 degrees Celsius, which is around... 113 Fahrenheit. And our lodging is made of mud brick, so it does nothing to uh, insulate the cool. Yeah, and uh, and so it's, it is getting really hot and really dusty. So let's get into things. We want to we talk today. So we want to share just some of the insights that we've had as we've um, been doing some filming in Egypt. And, and if you're wondering, okay, what are you guys filming? Um, Wes, what are we doing here? So we're doing a series on Can I Trust the Bible? So we came out here to Egypt because we're going to some of the sites and some of the locations that some of the earliest manuscripts of the Bible were discovered. Not just the Bible, too. We're looking at some of the locations like the Nag Hammadi documents that were found in the Nag Hammadi Desert, which includes things like the Gospel of Thomas, the secret writing of John. And so we're tackling some of those big subjects about where did our Bible come from? How did we go from papyrus to print? And what what about those other books? What about the Gospel of Thomas? What about the Gospel mm-hmm. of Philip? Why aren't those in our Bible? Why do we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and not them? So we're in a place like Egypt and not a place like Israel because when we're talking about the text of the Bible, not necessarily the content of the Bible, mm-hmm. this is really the place to be. So we've been all over. We've been uh, to the the north in Alexandria on the Mediterranean Sea. We've been down in, well, of course, Cairo and Luxor. And now we're out in the middle of nowhere, really far uh, in the desert towards uh, Libya, out out in the western desert. And, well, not quite to Libya, of course, but we're in that direction. It feels like we might as well be. (laughs) So we want to talk a little bit about what we've seen and an an important concept that I think, uh, Wes, you would agree uh, as we've talked with various people, they're kind of they're a little they're they're disturbed by or, or at least they don't know what to do when they see different examples of the Bible borrowing or using things that are outside of the Christian worldview, like the the different religious or philosophies or philosophers of of the time. And so we want to talk about some of those, and we want to just share with you what we think. Yeah, I think I would I think I would use the word mirroring. I'm mirroring for the contextualization of what's going on. So a couple of the just clearest examples that we've noticed mm-hmm. is we were over at uh, an ancient uh, ancient Egyptian site, and we literally saw hieroglyphics describing the process of circumcision. Right. And so, you know, you read Genesis, you read God making that covenant with Abraham and saying, this is how I'm going to visualize that to you for you and your sons that they're going to be circumcised. And I think one of the things we should realize is that Abraham didn't go, hey, God, well, well, what's that? Right. You know, there would have been a context for it. And we know that the ancient Egyptians were circumcising uh, males before the Israelites ever did it. And I think, like you said, some people might see that and they might think, okay, you know, what about this kind of a Jesus myth theory where 
these ideas that we see in the Bible are just plagiarized. You know, there's an, there are other flood stories that's obviously just you know, taken and appropriated in the Bible. Um, well, I don't think that's what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I think actually we, we can also talk about some of the differences because there are extremely stark differences. But for the, the actual parallels, I, I think what we're seeing is not that there's this borrowing and plagiarizing from other ancient Near Eastern cultures. I think what we're seeing is God using the cultural understanding of the day to communicate just how things would have been understood for the regular ancient Near Eastern individual. Right. So in other words, as God is interacting with Abraham and and he's making this covenant with this, that will be this Jewish nation, it's not like everything that's being done or created or uh, the engagement with God is all brand new. Mm-hmm. That these would be t- there would be many touch points within the culture already, and one of them that we just mentioned was circumcision. But then there's others. So, for example, when you're in uh, Egypt and you're looking at different archaeological sites, uh, the temples in Egypt have a holy of holies. Mm-hmm. So this would be uh, another uh, idea that wouldn't have been a foreign concept to say uh, Moses. Yeah, that the the temple where you would worship God, or in the case of, say, the ancient Egyptians, the gods, mm-hmm. would have almost different levels of courts to them, which would end with the Holy of Holies, which only the high priest was allowed to go into yeah. and offer sacrifices or do whatever rituals uh, you see there that the the ancient Israelite would have understood, well, this is just what ancient cultic practice looks like. And I'm using that word cultic practice. That's kind of an academic word. It doesn't mean, it has nothing to do with the word cult, uh, but sometimes you'll read religious academic work and it'll refer to cultic practices. That just means religious rituals. So you have these religious rituals which are being done in the ancient world. And it makes sense, I think. And I think it adds on the contrary to people who might say, well, this is a sign that they're borrowing from these things. I think it actually, the contrary is true and it gives credibility to the fact that these books were written in a particular place and time that we can we can put and we can place them on in a timeline. It makes sense that we would see these sort of motifs for when and where they're claiming to be written. I think that's a really important point. So actually it lends credibility to where they're being written, the time that they're being written, but it also demonstrates that God's that God, that, you know, the God of Yahweh, as we're talking about here in the Old Testament, as opposed to in Egypt, isn't isn't opposed to use what's going on in the culture. Is not opposed to using those touch points, but also uh, using those in ways that challenge the people to rethink the Egyptian gods versus the God of Yahweh. And you see one of those being, for example, in ancient Egypt, in the temple, you took your shoes off. Mm. That's why if you're in Egypt and you'll see a lot of the hieroglyphics, you'll see a lot of the statues and the temples, they're all barefoot. And it's this idea in, in ancient Egypt of you're, you're standing on holy ground. Mm-hmm. And this is interesting, though, right? When God, in, you know, encounters or, or when Moses encounters God at this burning bush and, and is told, hey, you're on, this is holy ground. My presence is holy ground. Yeah, it's not that, that he's in a temple. In one sense, I guess he is, but the right. temple is wherever God's that God is. That God's the creator of the heavens and the earth sort of idea? Yeah, and that it's not limited. God is not limited to this, like, the location. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that we have to move the idol around in so that the God is where they should be. God is everywhere, and the presence of God specifically 
for that particular story is in a special location. And so when the presence of God is in the burning bush, Moses needs to take his shoes off because he's on holy ground. It's not that he stepped into a a physical temple, although arguably maybe he did, but it wasn't built by human hands, Mm -hmm. but that there's something reverential about that. And that's exactly what we see later on in John chapter one, verse 18, when it says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally, the Greek word that we translate as made his dwelling is the word that the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses for the tabernacle where God is. And in that sense, the presence of God is not limited to the temple any longer. It's in Jesus. So on the one hand, God's willing to use what's going on in the culture and also to challenge what's going on in the culture Mm -hmm. for them to rethink who this God is, who Yahweh is. And we particularly see this in the Exodus account. And I got to tell you, Wes, as we've been here, the thought that just keeps going through my mind is what a scandal the book of Exodus is. Yeah. I mean, Egypt is huge. The monuments are bigger than life. It is very clear from being here how powerful they were, how influential uh, they were. I mean, listen, we even went to a, a, a statue, the statue of Minnan, and there was some Greek graffiti on it, which we were told by our guide that these statues were something to do with, you know, these screaming statues. And I remember our guide saying that to me. I'm like, like, I, I just wasn't sure if I could believe it. Yeah. So uh, for the listener, there are these two giant statues. I think they're of Amenhotep. And the Greeks had come there. And there's this ancient Greek story about Memnon. Let me just, on that note, when we say the Greeks came there, we mean Greeks came here as tourists. Yeah, this stuff was ancient. I mean, one of the things I was telling uh, Andy when we were walking around was that the proximity in time from Cleopatra is closer to the invention of the iPhone than she is to the building of the pyramids. That's how ancient ancient Egypt really is. You know, mm-hmm. we're looking at some of these tombs and our minds are just being blown by colors on the walls of hieroglyphics that are three, 4,000 years old. Like it's just yeah. mind blowing. But yeah, so this is literally ancient Greek tourism. They're coming in like the first, second century BC and then the first and second and third century AD to view these things. And there are these two giant statues of Amenhotep Uh, I think that's who it was. And uh, there's this ancient Greek story of uh, Memnon. And in the story, as I understand it, uh, Memnon died and his mother is crying for him. And over time, as the uh, as, you know, the statues war with time and just the elements, a number of holes developed in the statue, particularly in the neck and in the head and when the wind blew and the sunrise came up at a particular angle, it would force wind through this hole and it would make this like whistling sound almost Mm -hmm. as if he was crying or screaming or that kind of thing. And and there was some uh, Greek graffiti on the the bottom foundation, I guess, plinth of the statue. And when I read it, that's what it said. We came to see the, the screaming or the yelling statue, which was really, really cool to just put that in a place in history. And it starts to give you this appreciation that Egypt was viewed in, in awe, mm-hmm. uh, just how big and powerful they were and that people would just come to see this and, and that, you know, they were, they were a force to be reckoned with throughout history. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why they built such big monuments is to say, look at how powerful we are. Yeah. And here you've got this, you know, these slaves, these Hebrews, and they're being led by this nobody Moses. And they're, they are 
you know, in this this story of Exodus defeating the Egyptians, it's it is scandalous. Yeah, and one of the things you were saying when we were talking about this earlier is that it's almost an apologetic. Yeah. It's an apologetic. The book of Exodus is the an book apologetic. Of, yeah, Exodus in general. But particularly the plagues. The plagues are almost spoofing mm. the gods of Egypt with the Nile, with the animals that are being used. And one of the big ones was, you know, we were at the Temple of Luxor, and it's this giant megalithic structure, but it, it wouldn't have had a roof. And the reason it wouldn't have had a roof is because it was built to honor the god Ra, who was the sun. And you don't build a roof because that's cutting you off from the presence of Ra. And what is one of the the plagues in, in Egypt in, in the story of Exodus? Well, the sun goes out. The yeah. sun goes black. What a, what a clear picture of the god of the slaves, Yahweh, literally removing you from the presence of your head god. Yeah, is more powerful. Uh, another one that, that might be of interest to people is that Egyptian hieroglyphics is based on the religious language. It, it is the, the religious language. It's the language of the gods, if you will. And the gods were often uh, represented with animals. And so, not surprisingly, the language uses animals. So mm-hmm. in that sense, you see this kind of connection with the language of the gods. And here we see again in the Exodus story with the plagues that the, these different animals that are very meaningful or different places like the Nile or, you know, or things like the sun that are meaningful. You know, it's like these, it's these cosmic battles that are taking place in Yahweh is mm-hmm. demonstrating to be or showing to be more powerful than the Egyptian gods. And again, the idea that should just hit you is just the scandal of it. Yeah, so as much as we do see these parallels and, and we were really interested in seeing things like, like circumcision, uh, being paralleled or like the temple of the holy of holies being paralleled the differences are also very stark yes and i mean even the creation story in genesis outside of all of the other controversies of what's going on there and you know the the modern theories of uh, it, what is this describing exactly i think one of the key themes that the ancient reader would have understood is how different it was than the other ancient Near Eastern origin stories. Mm-hmm. You know, the stories of the other ancient Near Eastern um, cultures, just one example is the Babylonian creation story, which is called Enuma Elish, which is was read every Babylonian New Year, was just a battle between the gods, and then the gods who lost became the earth and became the sky and became, you know, the, the substance which you and I are made out of. You know, not unlike a modern atheist like Richard Dawkins who would say you're just a cosmic mistake the Enuma Leash you know very uh, encouraging thing to hear every New Year's <laughs> but you're your mistake right yeah. and w- what does Genesis say well it says no all those things you worship as gods the the sky the earth the animals the land the the plants all of it our God made those yeah and so you're foolish to worship yeah. them. And you're not a mistake. You're created with purpose and you're yeah. created with created with value and you bear the image of God. Yeah, every everyone bears the image of God. And this is a significant idea when you put it in context in Egypt. Yeah. You know, it was the royal elite. It was Pharaoh that, you know, was God's representative uh, on earth sort of idea. And here it's like, no, you've all been created by God. These other things you're worshiping, in fact, aren't gods. God's the creator of everything. God created you. God created you in his image. You, we are all his representative. Yeah, and the, the fairies will go to lengths and, and uh, you know, in their visualizations of themselves. We went to the, uh, the temple of ne- 
not Nefertiti. We went to the temple of Hatshepsut. Yeah. And in the temple of Hatshepsut, she was a, a, a princess. She wasn't a, a king. She wasn't a pharaoh. But she had almost invented the story of Ra becoming her father, to look like her father, to sleep with her mother, to give her a divine origin story so that she could lay claim to being the ruler over Egypt. And so she bore the image of a god. Mm -hmm. And then she portrays herself with divine qualities. And actually, even what we saw when we were at the Temple of Luxor was there was a there was a section that was built by Alexander the Great later on, not as ancient as the rest of the building. And he portrays himself as an Egyptian god, as an Egyptian pharaoh, being honored by the other gods. Well, you know, that's that's relegated. That is reserved for the elite, yeah. for the for the pharaohs, for the kings, for the emperors. And the biblical story is, no, you bear that image. You have that responsibility. You are given that uh, that authority and, and level of importance. Now, before we wrap this up, I just want to take a moment to explain and, and for us to talk about the we see these motifs in the Old Testament, but we also see these motifs in the New Testament. And so we can see similar examples that might just help people to have uh, an appreciation for what we're what we're getting after here. Uh, one of those examples is uh, what, what, an example is Paul. Paul often is quoting different philosophers and poets. So Titus uh, one twelve, for example, uh, Paul says. Uh, he says, quoting their own poet, he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. He's like, this is this is what their own poets say, mm-hmm. uh, you know, about them. And and we see this in various uh, places where Paul will quote different philosophers. Yeah. Yeah. Or even Acts 17, when he's at the, the Areopagus, you know, Mars Hill, mm-hmm. he says, for in him we live and move and exist as some even of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. And there he's he's quoting uh, two different Greek philosophers, but one of them is from Erastus, and Erastus is writing a hymn to Zeus, and he's kind of playing, he's kind of spoofing this idea that uh, you already have these concepts in your religion. Yeah. Let me tell you how they actually make sense. Yes, in him you have your being, and in in that Greek poem it's referring to Zeus, and he's saying no, no, it's not Zeus. It's Yahweh, it's the God of the Bible, and particularly Jesus. Right, and I think that that's a good way maybe of actually thinking about it, uh, Wes, is that we have these natural intuitions about, with regards to, you know, like belief in God, for example, or, you know, the ancient Egyptians, you know, had this idea of God's holiness, for example, and like being in God's presence or something, you know, that that's the holy of holies sort of idea. So it's, it's interesting that Paul picks up on this, of course, with the poets and the philosophers saying, listen, you, you even understand this at some level, but I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, bring even further clarity to it. So again, it doesn't surprise me that God's going to use these sorts of things to reveal himself and to provide clarity. Yeah, I'm going to turn up the focus. Yeah. I'm going to make sure you understand exactly what you're seeing. What you understand is pixelated, but by turning up that dial and focusing on you know, what that actual picture looks like, well, you're going to see Jesus. You're going to see the God of the Bible, and you're going to understand you know, all of these ideas that we're talking about. You have, you have yeah. purpose, you have value, you have meaning, and everything you're looking for in your religiosity, that makes sense. It's made sense of by Jesus.
That should draw you closer to God. Yeah. Provide clarity. Now, one of the other ones that that you and I have talked about, and we're going to do a whole podcast on this, and that's speaking in tongues. I I think a lot of people will be surprised to know that speaking in tongues finds itself within a cultural context in uh, ancient Greece and particularly there in Corinth. But we see this practice uh, playing out in places like Delphi uh, in the spiritual practices at that time. And so, again, it doesn't surprise me that God's going to use that. Mm -hmm. Now, you and I right now, now I know that was just a bit of a teaser. People are like, oh, man, talk more about that. We will. We will. But we'll we'll come back. We'll circle back on that one. But I wanted to bring it up just quickly as we end here because we're in the Middle East. We're currently, you know, in Egypt. And God is is not done revealing himself, drawing people to him, and using things, touch points within the culture to do that. And so... We often hear stories of God using dreams, for example, in the Middle East, which, yeah. which are significant to them. Yeah, and more significant than us in the West, yeah. I think. You know, we're, we can easily explain away uh, a weird dream by uh, what we ate, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And I think there's this great uh, picture in C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters where uh, – so if you don't know what The Screwtape Letters are, it's a book written by C.S. Lewis where he talks about these two demons, uh, Screwtape and Wormwood. And one is kind of like a mentor demon and a mentee demon and teaching this this younger demon how to lead astray this particular individual. And there's this one really great scene which I always appreciate. Screwtape is standing by the edge of the bed and re- he's rehearsing how he's going to show himself – to this, this, his person mm-hmm. and scare him. And his mentor shows up and says, hey, what are you doing? And he explains it. And he's like, no, no, don't do that. Because if you reveal yourself, you open him up to the possibility of the supernatural and you open up to the possibility that actually the enemy, in this case, God, could actually exist. Mm-hmm. It's better here to, to convince him you don't exist, convince him that all that exists is the natural. And I think, you know, that's true. In our culture, it's far more persuasive to convince someone of natural materialism than it is to convince them of spiritualism, although I do think we're taking a shift in our culture to a certain degree. But all that to say, the difference in our contextual understanding of how we view the world, our worldview um, here in the Middle East, in Egypt, or you know Syria, Jordan, uh, Iraq, bigger country, versus the West is very, very different. And I think both Satan... And God uses that to either lead us astray or to reveal himself for, you know, the glory of his will. Lots more that we could talk about. That's all we got time for. We're going to need to go find a cool place, (laughs) (laughs) which I don't know that it exists here. Uh, But we're really looking forward to showing you the content from what we've been filming here. It is quite excellent, and you'll be able to find it at our conferences that are coming up. We have a conference in Saskatchewan that's coming up at Briarcrest. We're going to be out in Ontario, uh, and then we'll be out in British Columbia uh, as well. You'll be able to find this content online. It'll all be coming soon. But thank you for listening to AC Podcast. We'll be back soon with more things to think about. Until then, love God, love people. Love God, love people. Love people, love people, love people. It's the AC Podcast. For the love of God, love people.